right. <laughs> We're in a new sermon series, friends, and it is the beginning of Lent. So welcome to a journey that we have called The Lazarus Life, based on a great book title by a man named Stephen Smith. And we are going to spend the next six weeks talking about walking out of the darkness of the tomb and into the light of Christ. And as Mark and Chad and my colleagues here this morning have indicated, it is the beginning of this historic season of the church that starts with Ash Wednesday and takes us to Easter Sunday. However, it's also another season, the Olympics. So raise of hands, who's been watching the Olympics, right? We pile up on the couch every night. We're addicted to random sports now that we don't talk about for, except every four years, like the skeleton and the luge and the curling and the biathlon and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's great, we love it. But what is so exciting about the games, besides the math lesson that comes with snowboarding, if you've got a fourth grader, you can teach a lot about math. How many rotations is a 1440? Some of you are not gonna listen to the rest of this sermon if I don't tell you, it's four. It's four, so pay attention to what we're preaching. Um, stories are what captivate us when we watch the games. Yes, we wanna see the medal count, yes, we wanna count the rotations, but the stories of the athletes are what we tune in for. How about the Toyota commercials? They are all story. The stories, of these little kids that maybe never wanted to put ice skates or skis on who went on to win speed skating or become the grand slalom gold medalist. These are the reasons we turn the Olympic Games on. And beyond the season of the Olympics, we tune into TV and media and movies and we read books because of the stories they tell us. We love stories. The Harvard Business Review suggests that of all the marketing strategies that you could employ, one of the most powerful is telling a story. Don't just tell me to buy your product, tell me a story about your product or how all the people who've used your product have had life transformation as a result. And beyond the games, if we even turn on the little Competition shows, little shows like American Idol or America's Got Talent, what do we tune in for? The stories. The small town high school kid who never thought they would ever sing a day in their life and went on to win the championship of that game or the gold, not gold medal I suppose, the Grammy Award, the gold medal of music. Or if you watch Shark Tank, it's the story of how a good idea plus a billionaire can turn you into a story of success. There's been articles about why we watch HGTV, why we want to watch people restore their homes. Yes, we want new kitchens, but we want to see things that are broken restored into something new. We want to document and follow my 600 pound life to someone who can get up and get out of bed and walk. And the books that some of you have read in literature classes throughout your life, in high school or in college, you may have ached your way through them. I remember my poor son when he brought Julius Caesar home. I looked at him, I said, I am so sorry, buddy. <laughs> but he remembers the story, not just because it was hard, because Shakespeare's hard, but it, it, it was hard and he remembers the characters. 
He remembers the power of something good turned bad or something bad turned good. Adam Gopink once wrote in The New Yorker that stories are the currency of life. He's absolutely right. Why? A good story can change our lives. Some of you have made decisions to become who you are today because of a story you heard. And it may have been a good or bad story. It may have led you to something good or difficult. But someone somewhere said, let me tell you a story about my experience or my journey. And you may have made a shift or a change in your life because of a story. There's something in a story that aches and longs to be told. Things are not stagnant in a story. Even really awful, boring stories are moving somewhere. Stories are told for a reason. They shape us, they warn us, they convict us, they enlighten us, they enliven us. It's why Flannery O'Connor says, there is something in us as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, the moment where things change, that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. Which is why Jesus told stories. His parables, they're stories. And they weren't stories he just told for the sake of gathering folks around to make them feel good. They were stories he told because he wanted people to change. So it's why after Jesus told his parables, he many times said, listen up. Whomever has ears, let them hear. In other words, don't just listen to the story. Let the story transform you. So it's little wonder then when the God of the universe through his Holy Spirit empowered human beings just like us thousands of years ago to write the words of the, the Bible story down, the true stories of our lives, when those were written down, God could have sent us anything. A science textbook, a dictionary, a glossary of terms, a stack of legal briefs, a reformed tax code. He could have done any of that, but he chose to give us a story. The story, of course, about our beginnings, and this whole thing in the middle that's called the life we live and the resurrection ending. This is the big epic narrative of God's love from beginning to restored, resurrected end. And in between, we have the stories of the Bible and the stories of our own lives. The way that God reveals himself to us is through story. It's why we cannot look away from stories about redemption and resurrection and restoration because we see ourselves somewhere in them. There's part of us in our DNA that wants to see things redeemed and restored. We want the good ending. It's provided in Jesus, of course, but we wanna see it happen in our lives. So this journey that we are embarking on throughout Lent, we are going to spend six weeks in one Bible story. And we're going to pick it apart and pull it apart and underline it and highlight it or whatever it is that you do to pay attention to a story. But before we get to that, it's helpful to remember where our story begins. The story of Genesis, 
the story of our beginnings, when God set us up, Adam and Eve, humanity he set up, creates us in his image, puts us in this beautiful, flourishing, thriving, life-giving, God-honoring garden. It's gorgeous. Everything we ever wanted or needed is there. And we took one look around and we were like, yeah, it's not enough. Sorry, God. There's that one thing that you said that I can't have that apple on that tree over there. We're, we're going to have it. Because if you were really a good God, you wouldn't deny us anything. And so we know this story, whether this is your first time ever in church or not, we know the story of Adam and Eve. They grabbed the apple. And the cascade effect of that is horrific. Terror, envy, strife, jealousy, greed, anger, hatred, division. This comes to us because of that moment. But we also learn in Genesis that God didn't stop there, didn't just leave us in the dirt, provided for us, banished us from the garden, but provided for us on our way out. And we're told we are made in God's image, that even though we didn't exactly listen to what God wanted for us, we are made in his image. And so within us is also God's divine thumbprint, which means that in us is life and hope and restoration and justice and mercy and peace and grace. And so our story is this cacophony of experiences and events that come from both sides, the darkness and the light. It's why we at one day could be the good Samaritan who stops to lift someone up and brush them off out of the dirt and the pit of the road, and another day we might look and be the one who neglects the opportunity to see need. We have in us the capacity for love and rage. Human beings can wage war. They can extinguish and exterminate one another through acts of genocide. And we can also launch massive humanitarian efforts to rescue others. We have it in us to exclude and to power up and to dominate over, and we have it in us to include and to humble ourselves and to serve. We can extend a hand of healing, and then we can unleash terror and violence. This is the milieu and the mixture of the story that is every single one of us. And we wake up every day, and some days, we are the light and we extend God to others and other days we wake up and we are sheer horror and terror. And somewhere in all of this is an invitation by God to take this story and let him transform and redeem it. This Lenten season, we are going to study the story of Lazarus. It's found in John chapter 11. And it is the story of redemption. It is in one chapter of scripture, a preview of the resurrection story of Jesus. But it is also an invitation for personal, communal, national transformation in the real time life that we live at this very moment. Lazarus is an indication of where we all find ourselves today. It's a huge chapter of scripture. There are some stories in scripture that are two or three lines. I don't know about you, I find myself sometimes wishing I had more details. You don't have that with the Lazarus story. And like I said, we're gonna pack, spend six weeks unpacking it. 
So I'm not gonna steal all the thunder from my colleagues who will continue to preach this Lenten series, but what I'd like to do right now is invite you to flip open your phone or turn your tablet on or grab a Bible from over there, whatever you need to do. I'm going to walk us quickly through some of the highlights of the story. So you see where we are and you know where we are going in the story. It's John chapter 11. Starts out very simple. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. A man named Lazarus is sick. And we're not talking he had a little bit of a cold, he needed a couple cough drops. He is sick unto death. And he is from the village of Mary and Martha. He is Mary and Martha's brother. And Lazarus is Jesus' friend. Jesus actually knows Lazarus. They are not just casual acquaintance. They are deeply connected. They are friends. And so they send word to Jesus and they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Your friend is sick. And so Jesus hears this and says, this sickness is not, it's not gonna end in death. The sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory that this is happening. So upon hearing that his friend is sick, upon receiving the panicked request that he come from Mary and Martha, scriptures tell us here that he spends two more days where he was. No hurry. That's curious. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Why wouldn't you hustle up? Why would you stay, stay two more days where you were? And then he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And they panic. And they say, don't you remember that there were people there that want to kill you? Why do you want to go back there? So Jesus is finally deciding to go. And there's a scuffle. And his other followers are suggesting to him that this is not a good idea. And then after this, he says to them, our friend Lazarus, verse 11, has fallen asleep. And I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples say, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he just meant natural sleep. So he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him, which is a foreshadow that I'm about to do something amazing with Lazarus. And I wasn't even there. So whatever is happening to him, I had no influence on until I get there is almost what he's suggesting. And so he gets there and we read in verse 17 that Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And the Jews who were nearby had come to comfort their friends, Mary and Martha. And Martha is the first one to speak to Jesus. She comes flying out and she is upset. Lord, where were you? If you were here, this wouldn't have happened. How many times have we ever said that in our lives? And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she responds, yeah, I know, I know. And the resurrection day, that future thing that you talk about, but right here, right now, there's a dead body and it's my brother. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, he asks her. And then Mary comes out. And Mary runs out, he's not even to the house yet, and she stops him on the road and she shrieks the same thing. Where were you? Had you been here, this wouldn't have happened. And the passage tells us that Jesus takes one look at her and her terror and her pain, and he sees all of her beloved friends, the Jews who have come to be with them in their moment of grief. And in 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, he was troubled. Where have you laid him, he asks. Come and see, Lord. And then Jesus 
wept. And the Jews said, see how they, he loved him? And there were skeptics there, goes on to say to us, there are folks who say, this is the guy who made a blind man see and he can't even raise, couldn't even stop his, his friend from dying. Is this really who he says he is? Is this really the son of God? Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So, and here's a foreshadowing to Easter, they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when Jesus had said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What an amazing story of transformation. A story of a person like us who fell sick, whose life was full of all of the churned up stuff that we just discussed, and who was literally physically transformed by Jesus. But this story is a metaphor for us. Yes, it is pointing to the actual physical restoration we will get one day in the resurrection, but for our purposes here today and as we go through this life until we get to then, this is the story of how darkness and death and sin and the garden become resurrected, transformed moments of life. Because we don't sit around as people of faith and just wait till the end. We get to live the resurrection and live God's purposes now. But in order for us to do that, in order for us to answer the hard questions of the day, the why did this happen, the what's wrong with people, the why can't we stop fighting, why can't we literally stop killing each other? Why? Because we are not transformed. Because we have to get over fear and anger and violence and shame and pain and chaos. We have to get out of the dark tomb and let Jesus call us and lift us up into a better place. Here's the catch though. This is not accomplished by simply checking things off a list. Yes, there is work to do. And some of you are wondering when I'm going to get to that part in this sermon. You've got your pen ready. You're ready for the slide to come up on the screen that says here's the four things you need to do by the end of the week to make transformation happen. We are Americans after all and we do stuff and we get stuff done. We are achievers, we are strivers, we want the good grade, we wanna get on the team, we wanna be in that group, we wanna achieve that. Some of you have been told you are loved only for what you have achieved and only for what you have accomplished. And here's the reality. Transformation is not, um, does not come to us by what we do, but it's, by awakening to love. It's by awakening to God's presence. Notice in this story, there is all sorts of commotion and activity and there are all sorts of people talking. What does Lazarus say? Nothing. He's dead. The guy in the story who's transformed can do nothing. He is dead. 
And Jesus comes to him and brings him up to new life, not because of anything he did, but simply because he was his friend and he loved him. You know what scripture calls us? You know what Jesus says we are? His friends. That's what it says in scripture. He loves us in that same way. And transformation is awakening to the love of God. It is not clicking things off a list and hoping that that works. It is awakening to the transformational presence and love of God that is with us in the depths of the darkest, most decayed tombs that we could possibly find ourselves in. That's what transformation is. It's awakening to love. And all of us bear the scars of someone who has loved us for less. And when we wake up to that love, we cannot help then but look around and want to do something as a reaction to that love. We have just experienced the most miraculous, wonderful, God-honoring, peace-giving moment with our Lord and Savior and the natural response when wonderful things happen is to look around and go, did you see that? Did you feel that? No, okay, let me tell you how this is. Let me tell you what love feels like. Let me live differently. Let me be a different person in my community, my relationships, my marriage, my home, whatever it is. My dad, my dad and mom, I've got great parents. I'm, I'm really blessed in that. They have been in the front row of everything I have ever done in my life. And I have had relationships that haven't been easy in my life and times where I have been loved by what I did not for who I was, but my dad has loved me madly and fiercely my whole life to the best of his ability because of who I am. He would come to some of my games and events when I was growing up, and I, would, I was good at some stuff. I would like, like play softball really well. I, I won things, and my dad never knew who won. When things were over, he'd be like, honey, who won that? And I'm like, did you not see? It was the championship, dad. He, he, he did not care. He was there to watch his daughter play a game. He could have cared less. My dad is interested in faith, but he's not a man of faith. He doesn't come to church. He doesn't claim a faith in Jesus. He's not hostile to it. He just hasn't been there yet. We've had many a discussion about it. And when I graduated from seminary, my dad was in the front row of my seminary graduation with a big old smile on his face, watching me do my thing. And when it was over, he threw his arms around me, gave him this big hug. He said, I am so proud of you, honey. He goes, what is this you're doing again? <laughs> I was like, oh, dad, I'm going to be a pastor. He's like, well, you're going to be a great one. <laughs> like, okay. This, this is my dad. This is, I mean, and I know not everybody has a great dad story. I, I do. I'm blessed with that. This is the closest I've ever come to feeling somebody who loved me just because I was me, not because I won or lost or performed or achieved or because I prayed enough, or because I read the Bible enough, or whatever Christian guilt you are carrying around. You are loved because you are you. God loves you. All broken and mangled and messed up and twisted and all the parts of you that you hope nobody ever sees, that's you, and he loves you. And when you awaken to that love, you allow the transformational power of Jesus to move you to a new place. But transformation is not about doing, it's about being and receiving. So what do we do then with this story? What do we do with this love? How do we 
live in the light of this love. And like I said, it's, it's when you wake up to it and you, you can't help but respond to it. And this week, what I want to invite you to do is to find yourself in the story and ask yourself, what, what posture are you in? Are you in a posture or in a place in the story to receive love? Stephen Smith, in his book with this title, The Lazarus Life, talks about this great 14th century Renaissance painter, an Italian painter, Giotto. And he tells the story of this painting that's simply titled, The Raising of Lazarus. And I want to invite you to take a look at this painting and to find yourself in the story. And notice the different characters in the story and, and who they're looking at and which way they're facing. And some are in awe of Lazarus and others have turned around and figured out that Jesus did this and they have fallen at his feet. And there's poor Lazarus. I, I have to say, I giggle a little bit. I know that's inappropriate with the story, but I mean, how did he get out of the grave? Like, <laughs> he can't even move. And he's waiting there. Like, how long was it before Jesus said, take the cloths off of him, let him go free? I, I don't know what that feels like, but maybe you feel a little trapped. Maybe you don't see yourself in this yet because you're still in the, in the tomb. And maybe you're the skeptic that isn't quite sure this really happened. I don't know where you are, but we cannot come here week after week and not find ourselves in, in the story, in this particular story for Lent, but in the story of Jesus and the story of God's redemption. You're in the story. Whether you want to be or not, by sheer existence, because God created you, you are in the story. You are a character in the story. So where are you in the story? That's my invitation for you this week. Find yourself in the story. Go home and read this again. Read it to your children if you have them. Read it to a treasured friend if you have a friend that's close enough that that doesn't feel awkward to do. I don't know, but read the story and find yourself in it. Because when we are transformed, we come out of that darkness through the gift of love and the grave cloths come off and we see the world with a whole new light. My guess is when that cloth was finally removed from Lazarus' head, he saw the world in a whole new light. Several years ago, um, Joel and I, my husband, we had what we thought at the time was a good idea. Let's throw the kids in the car and drive across the country to Montana. And so we bought for 500 bucks a pop-up camper <laughs> from a friend of ours who was selling it. The camper was older than we were. It was this total jalopy, and we hooked it up to the back of our car, and we drove our kids across the country. And we got to the border of Montana and decided to get off the interstate and take back roads, which is a big state and a long way, all the way up through to Glacier National Park. And when we pulled into Glacier, the kids, of course, like any kid who's been trapped in a car, and our kids were little at the time, wanted nothing more than to get out of the car. And it was drippy and dreary and rainy when we got there. And it felt a little bit like winter does here, although it was summer, it was June. I know it's hard to believe because it snowed last night, but put yourself in June. And my kids had worn shorts and tank tops and flip-flops and t-shirts all the way across the country. And we came into Glacier and went up about eight, to about eight or 9,000 feet where our campground was for the night and got out, and it was cold and we were hustling around for hoodies and sweatshirts, and it was drippy and it was dark and everything was brown and nothing felt very pretty. 
and I had promised my kids this would be pretty, and it didn't feel pretty. And it kept getting colder and colder, and we made a campfire, and we all snuggled together in the middle of this pop-up, which was a good thing, because if you went too far to the edges of it, it would, it would actually tip a little bit. It was awesome. We got rid of that thing as fast as we could when the trip was over, <laughs> totally. We sold it to somebody else for 500 bucks, so it was awesome. I know, right? Eric, clap for that one, right? Like, we got our money back. Uh, but so we, we, get, we get hats, we get, we get everything we could. I wasn't prepared for it to be cold, so we're scrambling for stuff, and we fall asleep. And we wake up in the morning, we flip open the door of this glorious pop-up, and it had snowed like several inches overnight. We didn't have boots. <laughs> the whole world had been transformed, and it was stunning, though. We were in Glacier National Park in Montana. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was like 30 degrees, the sun was out, and the snow, just everything was bright all of a sudden. All the brown from the night before was gone. And we saw shadows that we didn't know were there. We saw things that were dangers, rocks and stuff were silhouetted in different ways, places I didn't want my kids to go. I knew the path that I didn't want them on, and we saw other paths illuminated, little winding ways through the trees that you could suddenly see now because of the snow. And the whole world was transformed. And we didn't feel quite ready for the experience we were about to have with our flip-flops, but it was stunning. And something had changed in the darkness of this jalopy camper, and we woke up to this transformed world. That is just a camping trip in Montana. It was still a good one. But the reality is this is, this is transformation. You're in the tomb and you're in the darkness and I don't know what's holding you in. And I don't know what thing you struggle with. I, all of us struggle with lots of things if we're honest. But what, what needs to be twisted and broken and left behind? And so what do you need to do to listen to the love of God call you up out of the tomb and, and open the door into the sunlight and see that the world has been transformed because of the love of God and see that you now know the path and you can see the faces of the people around you differently. And you know now, because of love, what to do to bring transformation to them. You see the whole landscape before you, this glorious life that we've been given. And it's not easy, because you know what? We had to step out of the camper in gym shoes, and we got snow in our shoes right away. It's not easy, but we make our way through it and we figure it out. And this is what love does. This is what transformation does. This is the Lazarus story. Step out of the tomb and into the lights. And friends, we are gonna go through this whole story together week after week, so please come and join us and listen to the players and the people in this story. Be transformed by it. Let the story of Lazarus, the story of the redemptive love of Jesus change you and bring you up out into the light.